Hey Kyle, it's Will here. Right now I'm walking on the beach on a beautiful sunny and windy morning on Vancouver Island. I'm already thinking about what I want to eat for dinner tonight and I was wondering if you're not the type of person who hoards their recipes, if you'd be willing to share your beet taco recipe with us podcast pals of yours. Please and thank you in advance and take it easy. So you want to know my famous beet taco recipe, huh, Will? All right, I'll tell you. But just because it's between you and me, all right, man? I put down a bed of onions into a cast iron pan. I then put thinly sliced beets over the bed of onions. I let it cook for 7 to 10 minutes with the top on the pan. I then put sliced mushrooms on top. I let that cook for a little while. Towards the end, I put garlic salt on top of the veggie stir-fry. And at the very end after that, I will put sliced chard on top of everything. And that will cook down after even two minutes. You don't want to let it cook overcook the chard. Uh, and this is really important. Before you take it off the pan, you're going to sprinkle some tahini dressing over the veggie stir-fry. I love tahini dressing, and I think that it uh, spices up a typically bland veggie stir-fry. And then I put that on corn tacos with pepper jack cheese. The thing that I love about this recipe is that it doesn't have meat in it, but it tastes like it does. The beets and the mushrooms are both really hearty vegetables. And I have beet tacos probably once a week it is a staple meal of mine and i like cooking real big portions of it and then uh saving leftovers for scrambles throughout the week so that's it it's pretty simple onwards and uh i hope you enjoy it i've been experimenting with a lot of different meals Uh, Over the last couple months, really since I broke my arm, I've been a lot more diligent about the foods that I put into my body. And a few things that I've noticed are that if I wait until about 11 a.m. to eat my first meal, I tend to have more energy throughout the whole day. Uh, I talk about it a lot. It's one of the sponsors of this podcast, but I have mud water most mornings and I put CBD coconut oil in that mud water and I blend it or to use a $10 word, I emulsify it, which helps bring out ingredients. You can even emulsify wine and that will help aerate it. You can, uh, fun fact, you can turn a a mediocre wine into an exceptional wine by emulsifying it. Um, and since I've been trying to keep my inflammation down as much as possible, I've been loading up on CBD, uh, both in the morning and in the evening as well as turmeric. So what I'm drinking right now is, um, Santa Cruz Medicinals CBD coconut oil blended with a mud water product that hasn't even hit the shelf yet called mud dream. And this is a non-caffeinated uh, mud water product that has chai, turkey tail, mushroom, um, turmeric, cinnamon, a bunch of 
products that I actually can't read because my buddy Shane, who founded Mudwater, just sent me this. Uh, <laughs> he sent me this uh, can, and it's all his his handwriting on it, and it, it just came with a little note that said, "Tell me what you think of the Mud Dream." Uh, which is is kind of cool, but unfortunately, I can't even read all of the products on here. But it's fucking delicious. I'm drinking it right now, and CBD is magical. If you have if you suffer from inflammation, um, if you know people who do, it's it's a really wonderful product. It's non psychoactive, um, and I use it I, I use it most days. Um, and you know, I'm talking here kind of like I'm a, a health expert, but I would like to give you the caveat that I am not. Um, I can only talk about these products from personal experience. Um, and I do feel that they help me think more clearly and help me heal more quickly. Um, so if it's something, if that's, if you're, if you want to think more clearly and feel less inflamed, go to, scmedicinals.com and check out any number of their CBD products. Um, I also, that, that ties into my, my motherfucking, uh, beet taco recipe. I use Santa Cruz medicinals, CBD coconut oil in that recipe. Um, and if you want to check out mud water, if you want a good replacement for coffee, go to mudwtr.com or check out their new shop on Abbott Kinney. Uh, it's all donation based, and they they donate um, their profits to MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, based right here in Santa Cruz, doing God's work. Uh, I'll make a little surfboard analogy here, shall we? We'll see if it works because uh, we talked all about surfboards in this episode. <laughs> I've gone through periods in my life where I felt like I just sucked at surfing. And then I realized that I was on a lemon board. And it wasn't my fault. It was the board's fault. And I much, I, I should have switched the boards. I should have switched the fins. I should have experimented with my interaction with the ocean differently. Right? Similarly, when I was younger, I always thought that I would just uh lose all my energy around 2 p.m. I thought I was just like biologically set up to be lethargic in the afternoon. And then I started switching my diet and I realized that it was just the fact that I was eating a bunch of French toast uh all day every day and panda puffs. Panda puffs were like my staple food when I was up until I was like 16 years old. I shifted my diet and I felt like I had more energy. Started changing boards up. All of a sudden realized you guys get the you guys get the metaphor. I don't know if it was really worth it worth saying, but I'm gonna keep it on because I don't want to redo this intro. Uh, these guys are awesome. I really enjoyed the podcast. Martine Stiphout and David Dennis. Um, Martine is the uh, the the craftsman, and David Dennis is the marketer of Ventana surfboards. They incorporate historic and exotic reclaimed woods from upcycled. Uh, materials such as guitar offcuts, boat holes, floorboards, even red, even wood from redwood and you know old hot tubs. It's really every surfboard that they make really does tell a story. And uh, 
I really enjoyed talking to them. So you can go check out uh, their new shop that is opening up uh, very soon in Santa Cruz, California, uh, and check out all their work um, on Instagram at Ventana Surfboards. You guys are great. Send me voice memos whenever you want me to ask more questions, and uh, love you all. Really appreciate you tuning in, and please enjoy this podcast with Martine Stipout and David Dennis. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Yeah, sweet. Uh, there has been a salmon run recently. Yeah. Have you have you got out and uh, had a chance to catch any salmon? I went out. I didn't didn't catch salmon. Yeah. No, got some rockfish. Did you off a boat or a board? Yeah. Just yeah. Rental boat. Yeah. Now they're nice to have. I mean, it's it's crazy the amount of sea life that we have in Santa Cruz. Like growing up surfing, I was never really interested in what was under the water. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I started. Uh, getting into diving i started learning more about the marine ecosystems that are down there and you just learn how much fish we have here and how easily you can go out and catch your own dinner yeah yeah it's a cool uh kind of shift in in perspective do you guys ever do uh, like surfboard fishing i haven't no yeah. no i do a lot of surf fishing or off of a boat right uh, but i haven't i go kayak once in a while but you'll go out on a board where you'll you'll paddle out with your, I haven't done. You that. haven't done that. No. Okay. Okay. But yeah, it's it's a lot easier on the boats. Yeah. <laughs> um, sweet guys. Well, hey, here we are. I appreciate you making time. You're opening the new shop soon. You are uh, undoubtedly working long hours making these well crafted surfboards, some of the best in the world. And I look forward to uh, hearing more about how the craftsmen make their crafts. It's like uh, it's it's interesting that. You know, you work at, at Microsoft, which is very, um, I don't know, in some ways your work is abstract, you know, but then you also have this very hands-on business where you're making these crafts and people can feel them and, and um, it seems to be an ever more valuable uh, thing for people in the world. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, I think there's a big shift, in, at least in this economy, for people to start looking for more consciously produced items handmade things locally made things um so it's definitely been a good switch right <clears throat> and and also using uh kind of branding surfboards as art yes right. yeah yeah that was pretty clear for me right from the get-go um i started this started building boards in 2009 and by the beginning of 2010 i'd really figured out that i wasn't going to be able to compete in the traditional surfboard industry you know my board standing in the racks with others they're not going to sell as well because they're going to be high priced and they're not going to be seen um, kind of as the art that they are. And it was a it was a pretty interesting shift from once I realized that and started valuing them as art. I you know I boosted the prices a bit because I mean I had to make things work for myself and it was kind of one of those things. As soon as I just about doubled my prices, people started paying attention and I started getting sales. And for half the price, you know, fourteen, fifteen hundred dollar longboard, people weren't looking at it twice. You know, like ah, it's a wood board. I, 
going to go look for something I'm familiar with. Right. You have a really interesting perspective on uh, why people value things. Like, Mm -hmm. as you said, like people started to value the surfboards when you made them more expensive. And that's true for a lot of products. Or you, you know, you moved the product into a new, uh, a new shop and all of a sudden people value that more. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the, um, the videos of, uh, you know, like the famous uh, opera singer, but they go down to the subway yeah. and people start, the people just pass them by, right? Yeah. Because they're not in the correct arena for them to sit back with their tuxedos and their fine wine. Yeah. 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 I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I never, I never tried the surf shops and never had my boards in surf shops. I started with a few kind of nicer stores downtown. Stripe was really, um, really good in the beginning. And then I moved to, moved my boards into Lumen Gallery down in Capitola, and Sierra was really vital in helping me understand that I was making art. I was doing more than just building a surfboard out of wood. Although they are all built to surf. They're, yeah, and they, they surf are. really well, too. Right. Yeah. So we, uh, what percentage of people who buy a Ventana surfboard would you say are then taking them out into the water? Probably 30% or so. Mm. Um, and it's that's people taking them out every once in a while. I think there's probably just a handful of people that have their go-to board as a wood board right you know i know of two or three guys here in town that that's what they surf exclusively but for most others it's you know it's that really nice glassy day when there's nobody out in the water and the tide's kind of medium high so they're not going to hit any rocks and they take it out for a special session or two and then hang it back on the wall right it's like that antique car that you take out on the sunday with your with your significant other and drive out in the country right it's like those woodies we see down in capitola village once a year it's like that uh that scene from ferris bueller's day off you know where he's like he doesn't drive it he just shines it that's right (laughs) we're gonna roll back the miles on it yeah exactly (laughs) he loves the car he hates his wife that's right and that's kind of you know one of the big responses we give to people who's everybody that comes up and looks at him and they touch him and they say oh i could never imagine i don't ever want to ride this and it's like well there's a guy that buys a hundred hundred thousand dollar ferrari and you know, puts a thousand miles on it a year and has it in the garage and dusts it every day. And there's the other guy that does a burnout out of the lot, puts a hundred thousand miles on it and doesn't care if he scratches it and blows through the wheels. Right. Which is me with my board. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, you know, there's definitely different, different ways that, of how people look at it, but they're all appreciated as art. And I think every one of them hangs on the wall when they're not being surfed. So that's right. kind of nice. What do you say to someone who scoffs at the price? I mean, the craftsmanship is incredible. I mean, if you look at the amount of time he's spending on each board, and I'm not actually allowed to touch the tools. I'm the guy that loves to tell the stories, but Martine's the the exclusive craftsman. But I mean, he's taking sometimes six weeks or more to complete a board. So if you just look at the total number of hours, could be 60, 70 hours perhaps for a board. And, and you know, you look at what goes into it as opposed to just, you know, whipping out a blank on a CNC machine and doing it in an afternoon. The craftsmanship is part of it. It's also the provenance of the wood. So the woods we have are some of the most incredible, historic, rare woods anywhere. We don't pay for wood. It's all donated to us and it's all technically trash. It's like we have wood from the original Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. We have wood from the boat that John Steinbeck and Doc Ricketts sailed into the Sea of Cortez in 1940. Santa Cruz Guitar Company gives us all their leftovers. We have these amazing offcuts from unbelievable guitars. 
wine barrels from SoCal Vineyards and whiskey barrels from Venus Spirits. And I mean, the list of partnerships, benches from the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And it's rare and it's got a story. And so that coupled with the craftsmanship and just the beauty of what he's creating is what justifies the price. Wow. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, you came in here this morning and you gave me a little piece from Steinbeck's boat and you said... Uh, you can smell the diesel on it. Yeah. Wood's one of those materials that that part of the story is the smell that comes with it. Yeah, yeah. My my uh, brother grew up in a, a wine barrel. It was a full sized wine barrel from uh, old growth redwood. Wow. And my dad repurposed it and made him this little two story loft. And uh, he grew up in it all throughout high school. And he he would always ask his friends if they wanted to come get barreled. <laughs> nice. if, there's, if that's out there still, we would love to borrow some of that wood. I don't know. My dad actually, it's yeah. uh, my, ha- my dad has it. It's old growth redwood that he recently, he used a lot of it to, to build uh, a new wine barrel, like five awesome. blocks away from here. I'll show you guys. Nice. Yeah. I'd love to see that. I mean, some of the old growth wet redwood, I mean, we're able to get wood that you're not actually allowed to buy anymore, right? You can't go cut down old growth redwood. So like we have two hot tubs, you know, they used to use beautiful old growth, you know, clear grain redwood for hot tubs. And they're, you know, when they're being salvaged, we can get them. And the woods that we're able to to get, wood we're able to get from that and put in the boards or our body surfing hand planes is unbelievable. It's beautiful. So you're using um, various woods and, and various composite resins to make the surfboard. So it could be part old growth redwood and then part balsa. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, my only stipulation is that it's, I'm the interceptor between you and the garbage, basically. So as long as it's donated, as long as it's a waste product, um, I'll, I'll make use of it somehow. Um, little bits, big bits, you know, generally doesn't matter if it's interesting wood, I'll incorporate it in some way, shape or form. And it's, I'm also not too critical of mixing hardwoods and softwoods. I mean, it's, you know, you have certain stipulations that you want to go by. I mean, I'd never do a board with a, you know, 16th inch thick balsa deck because you're going to step right through it. But, you know, besides structural integrity, we can use pretty much any type of wood. Um, And as you said, um, glue it all together with uh, eco epoxy or an environmental friendly epoxy resin um, and basically create the boards out of that. What kind of epoxy resin do you use? So I've been using Entropy Super Sap. Um, I've used some of that on, on past boards. Yeah. It's about 30 or 40% tree sap, so it's got a bio base, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and it's it's a really nice resin to work with. I was one of the first people laminating surfboards with it. Um, and I was just mentioning to David, I think I did my last hot coat this morning with their old resin, which I think they discontinued about four years ago. But for me, it was the best resin they've made. Um, the foam guys hate it because it's really yellow. So right. you, know, you build a board and it always immediately looks old. I, I had a bunch of boards and I got them all spray painted yellow for that reason. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so this, this resin just has this really amber tint to it. Um, and it's really thick. It's like honey almost. And most people don't like using it, but I've, you know, I've done over a hundred boards with it now and I really like it, but now I have to start looking for a new resin, um, either by Entropy or other brands, but they're, they're likely going to have a, a little bit lower of a biomass content which is okay as long as the resin works well it's going to last well and it's still you know better than just using virgin 
Yep. Sure. For us, we Residence. all the boards are gold. In fact, we were the first board. Martin was the first board builder in the world where all the boards were gold certified by Sustainable Surf. So they've got a pretty good list of you know resins and other products that are required for you to, to hit that certification level. And so that's where we're going to go to make sure that you know we're using the right materials going forward for for epoxy. And do you uh, primarily make your boards out of balsa? Is that the main wood, or I not so much? I think I've used balsa in one board. Oh, wow. So I actually, I very rarely use it, mainly because I can't get it reclaimed. So the little bits that I have used is from old RC models that I built, you know, model airplanes or model boats, and you know, had a little bit of scrap left over, so I used that in it. But other than that, I don't, don't generally get my hands on balsa um, or even polonia. I think the, the lightest woods that I really use are cedar and redwood. Um, so, so take me through, I mean, I know that... N- um, kind of by way of your story, there is no standard board that you make, mm-hmm. but give me as standard a story as you can of uh, how a, a board comes from, you know, an idea of making it to the customer's hands. Like what's just a, a, a time-lapse uh, story of that process. And I actually, this morning was looking at a time-lapse of you making a board and it looked fucking fully involved (laughs) yeah it is i'm a patient man so it works out well um it essentially you know we start with the shape if it's a shape i've done before then it's fairly simple and i can go ahead and cut the plywood um i use plywood for all my interior structure strength to weight ratios is the best for that um so i'll cut that and i use a laser cutter nowadays Uh, my first 70 boards or so i all did by hand but then i switched to laser um which obviously it saves me some time. It also gives me far greater accuracy. So I just build a better product. Um, but it's basically from cutting out the, the inside of the board, cutting out the, the skeleton, if you will, and then assembling that. The whole skeleton gets sealed in epoxy in case there ever is water that comes in. You know, the board will it'll last. Um, once that's built, I'm basically building a box. Um, right, a hollow framed box, and then it's determining what the decks are going to look like. So if the customer has a vision, then I try to build out their vision, or if they give me free reign, or if it's a stock board, then I'll just you know, put together what I feel looks good and what's aesthetically pleasing. Um, a lot of the board construction and design begins with literally just a pile of trash wood on the floor, and I'll scratch my head and stare at it for a while and say, okay, how can I put that together with this how are the colors going to blend how are the grains going to look and how am i going to make this pile of trash into something that you know, that's a premium product yeah something that somebody wants to hang on their wall surf etc um so once that design is done i'll basically i'll resaw all of my wood and that's where most of my time comes in i think is actually taking the trash wood that i have and then processing it to a usable material and then obviously once that's done i can actually figure out what is usable and what isn't so after that's done, I basically, I create a skin. So I'll create a skin of wood, which is about three sixteenths of an inch thick, basically flat sheets. Um, and then those get to get cut to the rough outline and they get glued onto the frame structure. Um, I don't do anything with steam bending. I use just weight and pressure in the table that I built. So essentially the, the bottom and the top decks will get glued onto the frame. And then once it's all cured, I'll pull that out of my, my clamping table and square off the rails. And I do 99% of the boards that I've done have had cork rails. It's a, it's a nice lightweight material. It's very ding resistant. It's easy to shape. It's easy to work with. And I think it actually looks pretty neat around the edges. 
So I'll, I'll lamin up, laminate my layers of cork on the edges. Um, so the corks are the cork is going around the rails of the board. Yes, right. but it's it's not actually bending like you motion. I'm sure everybody can see that. Yeah. Um, you know, they're I wildly gesticulate with my hands on yeah. this podcast a lot. <laughs> there, the cork is a quarter inch thick sheet. So I'll glue that up vertically in layers next to each other until I build my thickness that I need. And then I'll turn down the rails. So then I'll shape the actual edges of the box. Um, so that's, I think, the only step where my surfboard construction is the same as a, a foam surfboard maker's. You know, you have a blank with square rails, and then you turn the rails. Um, from there on, it's pretty similar. You know, it's, it's flattening the deck, sanding everything to the grit that I want, and then starting the, uh, the fiberglassing process. And a big part of uh, your boards is also the art that you create on the the decks or on the bottom. I've, I've seen. So, are you then cutting out new grooves of wood and and putting that in? You know, I've seen like flower shapes and all that. How do you make th- those patterns on the board? So generally, there are. I don't do a whole lot of inlays in the boards proper. Um, so they're not actually inlays. They're solid pieces all the way through. So if you know, if a rising sun board, for example, you know, it'll have 40, 60 rays of sunshine. Um, they're not laid on top of a substrate. They're solid all the way through. So most of my inlays and my stringers are all done that way. Um, I say inlays, but they're not truly inlays because they're not inlaid. They're just solid pieces. Um, <clears throat> so there isn't a whole lot of work that comes after. And I do like abalone inlays on the tail blocks, those I will cut in after the whole board sanded and flattened, and then I'll add those you know true inlays to it. Um, but the rest is generally cut. Yeah, I saw that just the other day. So you, what kind of abalone are you using on the tail? So it's a New Zealand Powa abalone. Um, I used to use all my own red abalone that I either I dove for many years ago or friends that used to ab dive gave me their shells. Um, but it really isn't a nice substance to work with. Um, lots of silica in there. It's it's quite toxic, so you have to do everything underwater or in water in order to cut and sand the shells. Is it, uh, abalone, sanding abalone is toxic. It is. Really? Um, so it gets all those beautiful colors to it, but all those beautiful colors are essentially heavy metals that it, the shells or the organism extracts from the water. I'm thinking about all the abalone that I've sanded in the yeah. backyard yeah, yeah, yeah. right now. <laughs> <laughs> huh, right. Yeah, it's a rough one. Um, <laughs> abalone lung. <laughs> exactly. I got abalone uh, lung. Right. So <laughs> I died from emphysema from <laughs> sanding too many abalone. Yeah, it's wow. unfortunately, it's, you know. Well, they're also like little pieces of glass almost, so they can... You breathe yeah. that in, it's definitely not good for you. Yeah. So I've started in the essence of self-preservation, I've started buying essentially laminated sheets that luthiers will use for guitar inlays and, and purflings and things like that. Actually, that's one of the other interesting inlays is the purfling. Yeah, so I'll use, you know, as I get all the trash or collected all the trash from Santa Cruz Guitar Company, um, I don't go to places that donate to us and pick through and grab what I want. I've always told them I'll take your entire heap of trash and I'll dispose of what I don't want or need. Um, but I end up with tons of little short bits, one, two, three inches long of all these really cool purfling patterns. Um, what but, are purfling patterns? But, so purfling is if you can visualize a guitar, the sound hole, that really neat patterned ring that'll be around the sound hole. Um, that's purfling. 
or where else do they have it? Around the headstock or sometimes around the body of the guitar sure, itself. Sure, sure. My, my old housemate used to be a guitar maker. Oh, okay. Yeah, and we would get high and he would tell me about the whole process. And <laughs> I, I'm looking at a photo of it right now. Um, yeah, it's just such a... Um, I, I suppose I'm really attracted to the slowness of it all and the attention yeah. to detail in a world that's just faster, faster, faster. Mm -hmm. I, th I think there's something very nourishing about hearing this this process of um, really putting your heart and soul into something and then attaining true mastery as a result. Like that's kind of what you're, uh, what I'm gaining from uh, listening to you talk about this. It's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. I'd, um you know, for me, it's always hard because it's just what I do. It's what I like doing. I like slow, long projects. I've been working on a little wooden boat in my garage for the past year, and it's probably another year out, which is perfectly fine by me. You know, I'm not in a rush to get it done tomorrow, and that's how the boards have always been. I've just known that they take a while. Sometimes you work on it for an hour a day, and then you have to wait for everything to kick till the next day. That's ah, perfectly fine. I'll move on to something else and wait for the next thing to dry. Mm. I think it's been good for me psychologically too, just as somebody in tech where everything is a mile a minute to actually appreciate the slow, deliberate craftsmanship that goes into this. Like it's been, it started out kind of challenging for me because I was used to everything, you know, the second you want it. And I think it's been good just psychologically to realize that, you know, really high quality requires that kind of time. Right. So what's the, um, what's your main, uh, job within this whole creation? Yeah. So anything that's business related. So hustling to get all the reclaimed woods, the partnerships, the whole website, all social media, all business development, marketing, all the event planning. We do a lot putting on our own events, um, branding. I mean, anything that's on the business side other than touching tools, because I would lose my fingers if I got to touch the saws. Right. Uh, that's all. That's what I bring to the table. So it's a really good partnership because I think Martin could do all of that. He just doesn't enjoy it. I love it. And it allows him to focus on the craftsmanship, which has been really great for the business. Right. Yeah. That's it's uh, it, we, without producers, movies would never get made. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, so many artists out there are just struggling because, you know, they call it a struggling artist for a reason because they want to do their art. And they don't have someone to necessarily tell the story and do the marketing and work with the press and that sort of thing. Um, you, when we were talking about doing the podcast, you texted me, right? Right. Um, and so it's been a really good, you know, division of labor to be able to drive the business forward together like that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and also you don't, you're not really promoting yourself. Like I think that's one of the more difficult things that artists, for artists, is to put their heart and soul into something and then also be self-promotional about yeah. it it's hard yeah because yeah. i mean we talk about i talk about martine as the master craftsman i mean right. that's kind of how we quote unquote branded martine and for him to be talking about i'm the master craftsman building these <laughs> yeah, forges is yeah. way different <laughs> exactly. than the business promoting him that way um you know he doesn't he's he's uh it doesn't have a big ego um and so the business is is allowing us to kind of showcase you know who he is and, and how amazing he is right um what Martin earlier you you used the term interesting wood. <laughs> what does interesting wood mean to you? Um, so I think there's a lot of different meanings to it. Obviously, the basic meaning of an interesting wood is you know finding a rare species or a species I haven't worked with before, something that's got a really unique grain pattern, unique smells, unique structural. Um, characteristics anything like that that's kind of 
the basics of being real interesting wood. You know, the other aspect of it is the source of the wood. Um, figuring out where it came from, like that little block of wood that we gave you from the, the Western Flyer. I mean, it looks like a little block of wood. It's like, oh, that's cool. This was around the engine compartment. But when you start thinking about it, you realize that if this two-inch block of wood had failed, Steinbeck could have been dead. He could have never written any of those other books. So their lives depended on that tiny little piece being intact for the entirety of their journey, and obviously thereafter as well. Um, but that always kind of hits at home for me. You know, thinking about a house that was built in the 1880s and the floorboards were in the house for 120 years before it was demolished. Who walked on those, right? It's Santa Cruz, so you never know. I mean, the random smelly hippie on the corner could have invented the telephone. <laughs> Obviously not, but you know, you never know who is who in Santa Cruz, I feel like. So that's another one of those, who walked on that floor? What stories could it tell? Um, and that's another, you know, the other interesting part of yeah. woodworking I mean, for, for me. Yeah, for us too, we, we've been able to partner with other companies that understand that as well. Like we just got a box from Tide Music. They make ukuleles up in Lake Tahoe and they were able to get their hands on 40,000 year old carbon dated cowrie, cowrie wood, from yeah. New Zealand that was found in a bog. And they used that to make an ukulele, but they had a bunch of offcuts and they sent it to us. Now Martine has this 40,000 year old wood with this incredible story with a matching ukulele that'll wind up in, I don't know, a tail block or a board or something. And now we've got these collaborative stories around reusing trash that are, to me, that's what's interesting. Like I get chills sometimes thinking about the stories that go into these woods. Um, and it's back to that conversation about provenance. I mean, this, the stories that you're able to tell with every sliver of wood and the boards that Martine makes is there's nothing else like it in the world and in the surf industry is that, that I know of. Right. Yeah. You're storytellers. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, there's a journalistic process to yeah. what yeah. you're doing. And I think that we like, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think that humans like to see ourselves, um, within a larger story of human history mm-hmm. like it, that people who are amazing authors like Steinbeck who can kind of pull out uh to 10,000 feet and show um you know our relationship to the world and let, let me see if I can do a better job articulating this because it's it's a very abstract thought but like if you are, say, fighting for a uh, social cause or something like that, it's very helpful to look at the social causes that have come before you and how they succeeded and to see your efforts within a larger context of, of human history. And I think that similarly, art can do that for people. We yeah. like we, They look at a, a surfboard that has abalone or it has a piece of Steinbeck's boat, boat in it, and all of a sudden... Um, they're able to zoom out very easily and look at that history and look at the future. And, and that's what makes it worth something because they see a part of themselves within that yeah. history. Yeah. And we're, for us, it's been amazing to have customers come to us and see what we posted on Instagram or Facebook or whatever and say, I saw that tiny piece of wood that you posted and you told the story and here's why it connects to me personally. We had a guy recently who I just threw out something on Reddit about on the Steinbeck subreddit about, you know, Hey, we've got this really cool wood from the Western flyer, all you Steinbeck fans. And a guy emailed us and said, I'd love to get a paddle, um, kayak paddle made and a fin made from the wood from Steinbeck's boat because I'm a huge Steinbeck fan. But I also noticed that you have wood from the original Moffett Field blimp hanger. We have redwood from that as well that came from a company over in Morgan Hill called Mission Bell Reclaimed. And he said, I used to work in that hanger. 
So I really want that specific wood with the Steinbeck wood mixed with some Santa Cruz guitar wood. And that whole, just that thin had so much meaning for him that, that, you know, he wanted to come over and watch it be made. And so it's these stories that resonate with people personally in their own life histories that, that make it so valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And imagine if, I mean, people pay millions of dollars for art, but imagine if then at any point you could take it off the wall and go get barreled on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it actually has yeah. a purpose well, to it. Well, and tell the know? stories in the lineup. Right. You know, I find when I'm out on the wood board, my, my daughter for her senior project last year at Pacific Collegiate made a board with Martine and she's out in the water with it telling the stories of all the different bits of wood and how it was made and people just want to paddle over and ride it and it's it's just a, it's a really neat thing. Have you ever... Uh, have you ever um, embedded uh, someone's ashes into a board? Ooh, that's interesting. I guess you could. No, I haven't yet. Yeah, yeah. I could use it as I a mean, binding we, agent. I mean, he does. I mean, it'd be a little bit more classic <laughs> yeah. than like a human hand. Like, yeah. this is my grandmother's bone. Maybe a human bone, though, would be, that would be kind of crazy. Yeah, you get be. me the bone. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah you know? totally do that. We have this thing that I've had for five years, and I'm going to use this podcast as an opportunity to once again ask Martine to use it. But we have a... I don't know, what is it, like a 40 million year old termite in amber? And wow. t- I want that embedded in something because the termite embedded in wood, this historic bug, I just think that's a really neat thing. And so we're always thinking about cool stuff we can do like that. I mean, he's got um, the board that's that's up for sale right now. The nail holes in the redwood floorboards from the old Schwann Mansion by Twin Lakes are filled with turquoise that's crushed from a necklace that was donated to us by Lucky Brand Jeans, who commissioned a couple of boards um, from us a while back. And so, you know, all these stories start to come together with these amazing inlays. And uh, it's just been it's just been so fun watching that process. I was over on uh, Hawaii recently um, on an Axis deer hunt, and we went into this lodge that um, a beehive head started um developing in one of the walls and then rather than than cutting out the whole wall they just glazed over half of the wall so it so you can be on the inside of this room and you open a curtain and you see this beehive through the glass then the bees can fly out (laughs) oh wow i'll show you a photo of it but i was thinking like you could uh a beehive board a beehive board wouldn't that that be be cool that would be pretty rad yeah 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 it's endless i mean i i you are in a way, I mean, you're part of the surf industry, but you're so far outside of it. It's almost, I mean, you couldn't even, you almost don't have competitors in the way that you said that you, you, you took your board out of the surf shops and then all of a sudden it became your own thing. I think that that's a really, um, kind of profound point to underscore. Yeah. I think if you think about it, just from put on the crass business hat, you've got to sustainably differentiate yourself from your competitors. So we're doing the right thing for the environment. Martine's making unbelievably beautiful stuff. Um, but one of the ways we differentiate ourselves is, to, is with these exclusive wood partnerships and these, these stories that we can tell that are so unique. And so I think you're right. You kind of hit the nail on the head. Literally we have lots of nails too. We gave you nails in that wood. Right. Uh, is that, um, the stories are just differentiated from, from what, what else is out there. And so we're within the industry, but we're also um, inspiring the industry in ways as well because of what we're doing with trash. Right. Martin, did you, what was the first surfboard that you ever shaped? Um, it was not foam. It was <laughs> not never, foam. Nope. Never done a foam You've board. You've never done a foam board. I, I did a 20-inch remote control surfer out of foam. That's the only foam board I've ever shaped, and that never even touched water. Um, so it's all been wood. I built myself a longboard. I used to always buy used boards and fix them up and 
you know, never had a lot of money for boards or anything like that. Um, and spent a long time redoing this Farley that I had. It was absolute favorite board. Pat Farley? Yeah. yeah. Walked down to the beach with my buddy, you know, after I'd completely reglassed it and everything. And my friend looked at me and goes, ha, ah, you're snapping that today. And my first wave, I snapped the damn thing. <laughs> so I didn't have a board anymore. And then it was kind of one of those, like, what am I going to do? I don't want to buy another $100 piece of junk and reglass it and do all this. So I'm going to go to Home Depot. I'm going to get some wood, see what I can cobble together. Um... And it turned out to be a beautiful board. I'd spent every day, most of the day, for six, seven weeks straight. Um, and it turned out as a, a nice-looking product. It's the worst thing I've ever surfed. <laughs> but that doesn't matter. You know, it got me in the water, and as soon as it was done, I think before it was done, I'd started the second one, and the second one turned out to be magic. Mm. So from then, I kind of figured out, like, okay. What kind of wood would you recommend uh, someone start with if they wanted to shape their own um, non non-foam board if uh, i'd always recommend plywood for the interior structure you know you can go with with a soft wood but you'd have to make it a lot thicker it'd be a lot heavier and i still don't think you'd get the strength um from there on if you know if you have means of resawing wood then i would definitely say redwood or cedar they're naturally rot resistant they're very lightweight they tend to flex quite easily so they're easy to to manipulate into the shape that you need for the board um, and they're very available in this area. You know, you can always find some softwood, even if you're on the East Coast. I mean, you can do it with, with you know, any of the local softwoods there. Um, so, yeah, I think anything you can locally find that um, that has characteristics that are desirable. As I said, I don't care about wood species anymore. I'll, I'll put everything next to each other. But I think there's quite a bit of... of um, time spent and and um i guess learning the learning the product of you know knowing how to deal with a piece of ebony that's next to a piece of redwood that's next to a piece of really soft cedar so i think the the more uniform the types of wood you can use for a beginner surfboard builder you know for somebody that's tackling a wood board that's going to be the best results in the end right and we're always encouraging people not to buy like go find sources where it's going to wind up in the landfill you know try to move away from foam if you can because we know it's toxic and it breaks down in the water and um so yeah i mean there's yeah there's great boards built out of two by fours that come out of houses right i mean yeah. i've i've built a few out of gray maynard who's an mma fighter a local guy yeah yeah i know gray he re redid his house over on grace i think it is yeah and we picked up all of his old studs built boards out of that I'm just eyeing the floorboards you have in this house that we're sitting in right <laughs> I'm now. I'm sure, yeah. This thing's old school. We got yeah. single pane windows. It's freezing cold here in the morning. Yeah. It's a true California surf shack. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I like what you said also about um, encouraging people to source local uh, woods and, and reclaimed woods. I mean, it's there is... We live in this time now where we are producing more than ever and we are wasting more than ever at an increasing rate. So yeah. if you at any point can, you know, there's, we basically run our economy in this linear way where we extract resources, we produce them, we uh, distribute them, the, we consume them, and then we dispose of them. So if you can... Um, insert yourself at some point in that line between consumption and disposal yeah. um you a you get free products and b you're making it's it's in some ways uh a real form of activism 
Mm. You know, you're saying this, this is not something that we can do forever. We live on a world with finite resources. Yep. It's not going to last forever. So, I mean, you're not going to be making a dent on a global scale, but I think the cultural shift and the kind of psycho-spiritual shift that you can make is worthy. Yeah, right? we're, I mean, we're encouraging people. Then we try to get our offcuts into the hands of other people, and we encourage all this sort of trash sharing. Like, there's almost a mini local economy around it. We, Martin takes a bunch of his offcuts, and in addition to creating more boards with those, we'll give them to local artists who will create, you know, we, a guy that we've worked with named Chris Allen, who takes the pieces of wood and turns them into wooden waves that you can put on the wall with old bike spokes around them and things like that. And, and so I think there's some real interesting opportunities for collaboration and for an economic model that allows everyone to reuse each other's trash, depending on, you know, what they're doing with it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm thinking about it myself. I mean, and it, it, uh, I mean, the marketing side of it too is interesting, right? Right. The point that I was going to make is like, it, it's more valuable that's than right. it's reclaimed. Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting here dropping the names of all these companies on your podcast right. just because they let us take their trash, right? So, right. so yeah. they're getting value out of something they would have thrown away anyway. And Martine's able to make some of the most beautiful surfboards in the world as a result. Right. And that's one of the, you know, I, I've run this business in three different versions. I started it with a business partner that I went to school with. Um, turns out it was a bad decision to do that, but without him, I'd never, I'd never actually gone for it. So it's not a bad decision, right? Because right. he gave me the courage and it was somebody to share the, the scariness with in the beginning. Um, didn't work out after a year and a half. So I went on my own for about two years and that was a struggle. I mean, that was definitely struggling artist. Um, cause I, I didn't have an Instagram. I didn't have a Facebook. I didn't don't do any promotion. People ask what I do. And they're like, oh, I just play around with wood. You know, that's kind of my response to it. Um, so it was very difficult. And one of the points that, you know, David and I had to kind of agree on, it wasn't had to agree, but one of the things that came to light when we started talking about bringing the business together is how can we make these boards more valuable? How can we do that? So, well, I can go buy a thousand dollar piece of Makassar ebony that they just cut down in, you know, the last forest in Madagascar, or we can find some trash that sounds good. We can find some trash that, that, you know, has a good story to it. And I think the value you can get out of a product with a story is so much greater than just going and buying some virgin material and be like, yeah, it's a beautiful board. It's all ebony might be the last one, but that's okay. It's a beautiful surfboard. Right. You know, so it's, it's a whole nother thing where just buying the top quality materials isn't necessarily going to get you that, that, um, that satisfaction of building a product that people are really going to want. So, yeah. I mean, who and it doesn't have the story no. attached to it, which makes it less valuable. Yeah. yeah. In fact, the story, if there is any story attached to it, it's a really bad one. Right. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Full of uh, yeah. human rights abuses and yeah. <laughs> resource extraction. Yeah. yeah. Blood ebony. Right. Right. Blood ebony. Yeah. Whoa. Coming 2020 with Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio. <laughs> that's right. You need big sheep to smuggle that in. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Oh, yeah. Have you guys ever seen the documentary Exit Through the Gift, gift yeah, Shop? Definitely. With Banksy? Yeah. I, I have. It's, it's a good it a documentary times. about how we value art. Yeah. Um, and I think that he does uh, a lot to force us, force us, force us to question our own um, notions around why we value certain things that yeah. we don't. He recently did this art show where it was a Banksy original, and someone bought the 
the piece for oh, with the shredder. millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. And the, as soon as they purchased it, the piece fell through a shredder right. that he had implanted at the bottom of the painting. Which probably made it worth twice as much. It actually did, yeah. That's the that's the interesting backstory. I think it went up in value three or four times just because it's halfway shredded. You right. Know? It's really amazing. Martin, did you grow up uh, surfing? Um, no, I didn't. I started when I was 12 in the Netherlands, so mm. just a little bit before I moved to the U.S. I, I was born in South Africa, and we were landlocked there. Um, after a few years there, we moved to Germany. It was no ocean in Germany. Um, but then once I moved to the Netherlands, I was going to school and there was a, a kid in class. I went to a German school because I'd started in Germany. So it was easier to continue the schooling. So most of the kids there were all German kids in a German school in the Netherlands. Um, but there was one guy who was a Dutch kid. Um, and he was in the German school. He had some German connection. Um, and he was kind of the outcast. He, he didn't really have any friends, but he became a really good friend of mine. And then I figured out that every day he was going boogie boarding after school. I'm like, oh, this guy might be on to something. So I started boogie boarding and, you know, jumped on my first surfboard in the North Sea as well. And it just kind of started with that. Mm. Um, you know, about a year and a half afterwards, we moved to the United States. And it was kind of one of those, like, I can't stop this. This is. <laughs> What's the water temperature like in the Netherlands? It's cold. Um, it's Colder pretty, than Santa Cruz? It's pretty similar, right. I think. Yeah, just miserable. I mean, <laughs> right. <laughs> crap waves, crap weather. And were you a builder from a young age as well? Yes. Um, I got my first whittling knife when I was three, I think. So I've always kind of started making my own things. When we were in South Africa, we didn't have very much. Um, so my dad built most of our house. He built a lot of the furniture. I know he built my first bicycle, um, and our trips to the dump, you know, we'd kind of go with an empty car and come back with a full car. It was always like, all right, what are we going to pick up and what are we going to fix? And what are we going to, what are we going to do with this? So it's, I've always been picking through trash and, and trying to repurpose things. Um, and I think that's carried with me all my life. I've never stopped building. And I do it to this day. I mean, I go to the shop and I work and I work and I work and I'll do six, eight hours and maybe I'm tired afterwards and I usually end up going home and cutting another piece of wood and doing more of it at home. And it might not be actual woodworking, but I have to be busy with my hands. Mm. And if it's beating something or sewing something or whatever it may be, as long as I'm busy with my hands and, and creating something... I'm happy. So it's definitely been instilled in me from day one. What uh, woodworkers did you look up to a lot as as a young man? Were there any that you can think of of people who are really? Uh, you mentioned your, th your father, but any any people, any lessons you learned that really stuck with you uh, growing up on this endeavor? I mean, I, I've just never really thought about woodworking the way that I've thought about, you know, surfing or you know, jujitsu or uh, hunting or cooking. And, and these are all disciplines of mastery that take a lifetime to learn. Yeah. Um, and I'm just really curious about that process um, on your own journey, you know, because it, you said you start at three, like, mm. God damn, you know how to cut a piece of wood. Am <laughs> <laughs> um, I all honest answer? I'd have to say none. Huh. I still don't really know any woodworkers' names. I mean, I know Paul Jansen. Yeah. yeah. Jansen, yeah. That's a, and he's a friend of ours now, and, you know, we met him through Instagram, through the business. But other than that, I've never followed any professional woodworkers. I don't, I don't 
know any by name. I hardly know shapers in the surfing industry. I, so you're talking I, about Paul the the Hollywood Paul Jasper the, and Jensen, right? Jensen's the the Hollywood and surfboard, and Paul Jasper at Copper Pig Fine Woodworking in it. Boston, who we've been collaborating with. He's really inspirational for both of us. Yeah, so I, I, I've kind of always been that way, though. I don't, you know, I don't know shapers, and I'll have friends like, oh, that was Bob Pearson that walked by. I'm like, cool, it does <laughs> yeah. look like a dude with a mustache to me. <laughs> right. So I just, I, those things have never been prevalent in my life. You know, I've never really had idols or people I look up to. As far as surfing, yeah. I mean, Joel Tudor's always kind of been one of my big ones just because he's got phenomenal style, and I love longboarding, but... <laughs> that sure. I, I couldn't tell you. Would you? Do you think that you're a quick learner uh, on on your own? Is, would you say that you go through iterations quickly, where you you know you learn from your mistakes and then move to something new, or like what's your process of of learning? I suppose. Yeah, I'm definitely. I think I'm pretty good at not making the same mistake twice. You mm. know, we all do it from time to time, but I've gotten pretty good at that. I've never taken a wood shop class. Mm. I've wow. never had any training on wood tools. I've never had. Wait any a minute! Training. I never knew that. Yeah, I've, I've never. The only thing I took kind of in the realm was an architecture class in my freshman year, and I use that to this day. And you got good before YouTube. Yeah, yeah. I mean, That's... now I can just look up woodworking on YouTube for how to change my oil, but... You can. It's Holy ridiculous. shit, man. And that, yeah, as you say, I mean, I had none of that, and I just kind of, you know, if I wanted to make it, I'd figure it out. And... I'm one of those goofy millennials, though, who's like... How would you get anywhere before Google Maps? <laughs> hey, I just turned 50 and I still don't know how we used to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's like all all memory has been erased yeah, exactly. before we got around that's with right. maps. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's cool, man. Um, well, good for you for, for uh, being honest about just your own process. I mean, that's uh, it's just really interesting to have such an unorthodox path towards something that's so original. Yeah. For me, it's always, it's never been of, can I make it? It's how can I make it? And then version what is mm. going to, you know, is going to make me happy, but I can make it. I know that. Right. And so what is your process of, you know, if you want to work with a new wood, do you read, do you look it up on the internet? Like how do you go about seeking out this knowledge? And, and I'm, I'm asking the question for someone who is interested in, in beginning woodworking, mm -hmm. um, how would you recommend they go about that? Yeah, I mean, the internet is, a, you know, it's right. an invaluable resource these days. And I think anybody that tells you that you don't need the internet for something, is, you know, <laughs> they're probably not telling sure. you the truth because you're going to need the internet. Um, a lot of the characteristics, you know, of new wood species, things like that, obviously in it being reclaimed that I get it from other people, I generally have the benefit of asking them. You know, I can just talk to a human and say, hey, what's the characteristics of this? How does this work? Um, and what's funny, a lot of times when you get bigger pieces of wood, even exotic or really fancy, the person giving it to you will be like, I hate that. It's so gummy. It doesn't cut. Just take it out of my shop. So you end up with a lot of that. And then it's figuring out, okay, well, what is the problem with it? If it is such a gummy wood, you know, maybe if you sand it differently, if you sand it in a different direction. Um, so a lot of it is talking to the source where I get it, or if I can't find that, then looking on the internet and looking at basic characteristics of the wood, if there's anything really weird about it, um, and then just taking a small piece and trying it out. I don't think I've necessarily ever found anything that's, as far as wood goes, that's not usable. 
Um, it's always just kind of adjusting your process. And, you know, there's certain types of wood that bleed color like crazy. You'd never expect a piece of wood to just leak color. But Indian rosewood, for example, you know, if you wipe that across maple, the maple's going to turn purple. Huh. So there's all these little things to learn about. And some won't take resin where others will. Sometimes you can't sand this fine because it won't take resin. But if you leave it a little rougher, it'll start taking the resin. So there's little nuances that you... You know, a lot of it you can't find out. You just have to figure it out. Wow. Yeah. Do you get a lot of splinters? Not anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. Um, no. no. I've only had one real bad one, and that went straight through my finger, bounced off my knuckle. Was... Yikes. <laughs> Although it seems like every time we have some intern or someone come, it's always the guys that wind up hurting themselves. We've had my daughter came in. We had, he had another, um, an eighth grade girl who did a surfboard with him and the girls are always, you know, perfectionists and they don't get injured and the guys come in and they're just cutting off fingers and right. not, not, that not bad, bad. but, but, uh, yeah, that's been really interesting to watch. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, going back to, to where we are in the world today and how many careers now are built on, uh, digital skills, you know, something that you can't, you know, touch yeah. and, and feel, um, I think that there's, we're going to see this shift in a lot of trades coming back, yeah. you know, and, and um, people are always going to need plumbers. They're always going to need um, people who know how to work with their hands. And it's become an increasingly valuable skill. Yep. I still call my dad when my washing machine breaks <laughs> and I'm super embarrassed when I do. And it's, and I, I'm realizing very quickly that there is still a, a need you know, for hands-on skills. And, and a lot of people who can work with their hands uh, can also transfer those skills from one to another. Like, yeah. Martin, you could probably fix my washing machine as well. Yeah. Right? <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> but but, but it's, al- it's almost like a mindset, as you said, towards yeah. a problem. And it's, and it's either, uh, I'm going to call someone and hire them to go do this for, for me to fix my washing machine or, or build this, this surfboard, or... I'm going to do it myself, and it's just a matter of how long it will take to pull it off. Yeah, yeah we're finding that the customers, they, one of the things we offer when you're getting a board built, we document the whole process, like every single step. You get a directory of photos and videos of everything being done, but people want to come out. He's finishing a board or just finished a board right now for a guy in Texas who flew out here just to be part of the build process, helped with the glassing, helped with the sanding, helped with the shaping of the rails, just because they want to they want to be part of that you know lost art basically. Right. It's really it's really been fun to watch. Uh, what was the what's the story with the guy from Texas? He's actually from California. Sold a house in California took a job in Texas and the differential between the housing prices and the two gave him a little extra money. Um, and he had been watching us actually a lot of our businesses from Instagram. And so he found us on Instagram and got really excited about what we were doing and went through our feed and said, I want this element from this board and this element from that board. He wanted a wood burned octopus from Jesse Kendall Barr, who's a local artist. Um, she was next to us at the booth where we saw you the other day. Wood burned octopus. So you yeah, bur- so burn it actually, into the wood. She has like a $30 tool Whoa. that's essentially, you know, creating art, painting with, with burning. So she burned this octopus into the board and he just, he wanted all these specific things and he wanted to come out and be part of the build process. So that was a cool one because we got to collaborate with a local artist who's, she's also a PhD candidate over at the Seymour Center, um, the, the Long Marine Lab studying uh, sleep patterns of marine mammals. 
and so she and a great underwater photographer and she's written books and and so we got to do this really cool collaboration with her with wood burning and so it was like a you know a local artist that was just doing really neat things but anyway this guy got fired up about what we were doing and he wanted to be part of the build because that's people are longing for that wow yeah, yeah. uh I I was just thinking about what you were saying. You're talking about all these different people from different industries that you get to work with, and that probably keeps you so inspired. Like it's there is a there is a stereotype, and a lot of stereotypes come from a kernel of the truth that surfboard shaper, shapers are crotchety humans. I think there is some truth to that. And, oh yeah, trust <laughs> you know, me. I'll tell you. Last week when I went into the shop and Martine had actually you know sanded through some resin and there was fiberglass pattern showing, and he was he gets I can walk in and immediately tell when he's crotchety because he screwed <laughs> something up, and I just turn around and walk back out. Right, it's like posture. You yeah, like crouch right. down, yeah. or you like up and open. We're not doing a video today, but I. Think I think another reason for that is that a lot of surfboard shapers don't feel like their work is valued. Um, They work within a market where people are used to paying $300, $400 for a board, and most surfers have no idea what really went into it. They're working in a toxic toxic environment, and uh, for a lot of them, they don't... I think that for a lot of shapers, they're creative people, but don't necessarily get to exercise that muscle as often as they'd like, because most people just want a 5'11 shortboard that's going to be great for uh surfing the point yeah you know whereas you you know you're talking about working with this phd marine biologist and these guitar makers and steinbeck's boat like it you're constantly moving out in this way that you're able to kind of insert your skills into new worlds yeah and get inspired by others that are doing similar things right yeah i mean i think one of the challenges we have is you talked about you know people want a cheap board and you know, it's a problem. We have Costco boards at $99. Um, but, uh, you know, that's been kind of one of the frustrations is that that that's an expectation. And, and so, you know, for us, we sometimes get called out. It's like, well, your boards are so expensive. They're only for the wealthy. And, you know, there may be a little bit of truth to that, but we've created an entire product line from, you know, environmentally responsible surf wax to eco-friendly clothing, um, we've been, Martine's invented a product called a save a surf box. That's literally a wax box made out of trash that has all kinds of really cool little features to it. And we've tried to make what we're doing accessible to everyone, even if maybe you can't afford a board, you know, out of the chute. Um, but, but that's been, you know, one of the challenges we want to figure out ways to make environmentally responsible products accessible to everyone. Right. Well, you're, yeah, I I don't think there's anything wrong with what you're doing, man. I mean, you're working your asses off to sell a premium product and you've proved that there's a market for it. That's right. And I don't have any problem with someone creating a product that they can sell where as long as there are no externalities, like the problem that I have with, you know, a a company like Exxon Mobil is that they're making a ton of money. Like that's no problem with that, but you're externalizing a huge amount of this, these costs, you're forcing society to pay the bill Mm -hmm. for your business. Whereas you're doing as much as you can to inter like to internalize literal waste, you know, into your business model. Mm -hmm. And you should be able to sell that for more money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's and it's so interesting what you said earlier about how as soon as you doubled the price, you started selling more products. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Uh, it's a strange psychological um, shift where the more we pay for something, the more we value it. Yeah. 
We've had to challenge ourselves to justify that price too. You know, you don't want to just mark something up because people are willing to pay for it, which is why the craftsmanship and the wood providence and, you know, the, 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 the stories behind the building are so important as well. Right. Cause you want to be able to justify it. I mean, the boards are eight to $15,000 and you want to be able to make sure that you're, you're delivering that value to customers. Yeah. Do you, how often are you working with someone like this guy from Texas who has a specific, um, vision in mind? Very often. Very often. Yeah. Yeah. We, we get a lot of interesting. We get a lot of um, women buying boards as a surprise for their significant others, and they try to incorporate interesting things for you know from that are meaningful to them. Um, and we get a lot of a lot of custom commissions, and then you know in between, Martin will you know put out some brand new, cool, interesting board. We've got one right now that he just finished called the Leftover Pork Chop, which is totally new and totally unique. That's for sale for stock, um, but most of them are, are custom commissions. Mm. Yeah, I uh, I've become obsessed with hunting over the last couple of years, and uh, this last uh, I was out on Hawaii and, and organized this trip for these kind of high roller podcasters who were willing to pay a bunch of money to go hunt axis deer, which is this premium animal that meat tastes great, and um, I was we we're out in the middle of fucking nowhere, like took helicopters into this this region on. Um, on Maui that uh, is very difficult to access. And we were there with some guides and, and one of the guides pointed that they were, we were kind of like scoffing, like, man, it's just expensive. Like it's insane how much people are willing to pay to do this. And he said, well, yeah, but think about like, you would never be willing to pay this amount of money to just go hiking in this area. Like people just don't do that. Mm-hmm. So we're showing that there is a market. And if you want to go, People might have a hard time with hunting, but people are these these hunters are out here harvesting one or two deer, uh, which is an invasive species. There's a lot of them, so I, I yeah. do see a parallel between yeah. the hunting world and and what you're doing, where you're showing that you know you sure you could go out and, and uh, go hunt a pig by yourself and it doesn't need to cost a lot of money, but you could also go, um, you know, up to some crazy far out horizon in the middle of nowhere um, and actually start to sustain an industry. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, I mean, a lot of people who are working in the environmental space are also not good at business, you know, so they're, they're nonprofits, you know, yeah. so it's, it's, they're in the sustainable world, but their business is kind of inherently unsustainable and they're constantly every year, you know, they're, they have huge, uh, financial risk because they're not sure if their funder is going to be able to come in year after year. Whereas, you guys are in, in the environmental space, but you also, you have customers, you know, it's a, yeah. it, it's well, and then we, we look for local, um, ocean conservation groups that mm. we can support that are doing good work, save the waves, save our shores, surf rider foundation, Seymour center, right. Monterey Bay aquariums, teen programs. And we give 5% of profits to those. In fact, the Western flyer, the boat we talked about, they're refurbishing that boat and basically rebuilding it and turning it into a state of the art research vessel for kids to go on. Uh, and so whenever we sell anything that has that wood, we donate it back to the, the creation of the Western Flyer. And so, you know, we're trying to find those nonprofits that are doing the right, right thing and support them. But you're right. I mean, so many nonprofits, it's just, you know, hand to mouth trying to raise money. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't mean to shit on uh, nonprofits because I think that there are people out there doing God's work. And for you guys to be able to shine the spotlight on them, that's uh, that's really important. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that if you can position yourself where you constantly have money coming in and you are 
supporting the ecosystem. Uh, you see yourselves, you, you have a business model that sees itself within a larger ecosystem. That's right. Right. Yeah. Whereas a lot of traditional business models are trying to make as much profit as possible and externalize as many costs. That's right. Which then is a problem. Yeah. And as surfers, you know, we see that, you know, yeah. so, so it's a very, uh, it's a big metaphor that you guys are involved with endless stories. Um, Tell me just a little bit more about the Steinbeck story, because I, I haven't read this book, and, but I mean, I've obviously heard of John Steinbeck, but it seems like a, that was a, a big moment for you guys, or just a, a big story to be able to Yeah, to so tell. it's an interesting story. So I was speaking at the Monterey Bay Aquarium to their teen program on a panel about sustainable business practices, and there was a guy in the audience, uh, a guy named Renee, and he was working on uh, rebuilding the original Steinbeck house that was in Pacific Grove where he wrote his first novel. And he comes up to me afterwards and he said, hey, I've got redwood from the floor, you know, the, the floor joists from this house. Do you want it? And I like, my heart skipped a beat and I said, yeah, that would be terrific. And so we, Martine built this incredible board mixing wood, uh, Alaskan yellow cedar from the Monterey Bay Aquarium's benches with the redwood from Steinbeck's first house. And then the Steinbeck Center heard about it and asked me to present at the Steinbeck Festival. So while I'm at the Steinbeck Festival with this board, we meet the guy who'd bought the Western Flyer and was refurbishing it. And it turns out he owns half of Moss Landing Marina, really neat guy. Um, uh, named John Gregg. And, and I said, Hey, we know you're working on the Western flyer. Any chance we could maybe get a board or two? And he said, Oh, sure. We'll sail it down for you from Port Townsend, Washington. Sure enough, a couple months later, a boat shows up at Moss Landing. They paid for the whole expense. Martine and I have pictures on the web where we're out there taking the wood. And now we've had two shipments of this wood. Um, but the story behind it is incredible because um, there's the log from the Sea of Cortez, which is the book that was written about the trip. It's a 77-foot um, sardine boat that Doc Ricketts and Steinbeck um, um, chartered to do really the first marine survey of the, of the Sea of Cortez in Mexico. Uh, and then the book has been this incredible inspiration for marine scientists and marine biologists all over the world. So I don't know if you had Jay Nichols, who wrote Blue Mind. I, I, yeah. He's a good friend. Yeah, we were on the radio, a uh, friend of ours, too, um, a while back with uh, Neil Proberg's Off the Lip radio show. And we gave him a piece of wood like we gave you. And he started to get choked up on the radio because that book meant so much to him. And... So it's been such an inspiration and Steinbeck, you know, means so much to the Monterey Bay and so much um, that book meant so much in terms of, you know, inspiring people to do that kind of marine biological research. And then Martine sort of had the idea for, for Ventana while he was kayaking in the Sea of Cortez with his father. And so there's all these really interesting parallels with, with, you know, what we're doing with Steinbeck, with the Monterey Bay, with marine science, with ocean conservation, and to have some of that Douglas fir from the hull of the boat and be able to donate back to the boat when we sell products with it. It's just, I still, every time I think about it, I get chills. That's so cool. Do you know uh, where the Douglas fir was sourced from? Uh, actually, I don't. Do you know, Martine? I'm pretty sure it's all local to Port Townsend area. Yeah. Um, it was built there, yeah. It was built in 39. Built in 1939. Yeah. And uh, maybe in 37. And then they yeah, sailed it in 40. Right, 37. But it sank two and a half times. Like it was partly <laughs> submerged and it was sunk twice and they had changed the name. So like there's this whole detective story behind it where a guy who was, you know, really into Steinbeck, um, they had lost the boat. It's considered sort of the most famous fishing boat in the world. And no one knew where it was. And so he did a bunch of research. I think it took him a year and he figured out that the, the registration number, the serial numbers on the, on the boat never changed. And he was able to find the boat 
and now they've turned the name back to Western Flyer. So it was always out there. It just they kept kind of bringing it up off the bottom of the of the pier. Uh, and realized that this was the Western Flyer. And Damn, it's, it's that's like, a great story. And it just keeps going and going. There's like this connection with the same time frame of I think when Steinbeck first sailed the boat, when Tom Blake created the hollow wooden surfboard, and then that's what our boards are based on. And then I think the the Tom Blake created the surfboard fin the same year that Steinbeck published his first book. And so we've created this whole interesting connection with the surf industry and using their wood in the boards. Man, I... Uh next hike I go on, I'm going to think about trees completely different because of this podcast. Yeah. It is remarkable that we have old growth redwood in Santa Cruz. Yeah. I, I mean, we were talking about how, you know, you can see there are certain items, whether it's a piece of art or a story that can allow you to see yourself within a larger context, within like the larger scope of human history. And I think that old growth redwoods can immediately snap you into that because it's something that's so much bigger than you yeah absolutely so i think just to go back to your question real quick um i'm pretty sure that they're doing the whole refit of the boat at the same shipyard where it was originally built the guy that's in charge of the refit is the grandson of the original boat of the original boat builder i didn't know that um and as far as i know they're still using nails and wood which was left over from the original build in the 30s. So there's, besides us having anything to do with it, the boat itself has this whole homecoming journey back to its original, you know, where it was built um, with the same materials and the same family that built the original boat. So it's it's pretty neat. Ventana Surfboards, the uh, the surfboard storytellers, yeah. Yeah. and you guys have a shop opening up. We do. So there's a, a shop on Soquel Avenue here in Santa Cruz um, uh, near the Crate Place across from Char- Charlie Hong Kong. It's called Shop Surf, uh, and we're working with David McIntosh, who's the owner, to shift it over to an environmentally responsible store, um, similar to what we're doing. And it's going to get rebranded uh, at the Ventana Surf Shop and Coffee Bar. He's got a, a, a Verve coffee bar um, that's about to open. So the store's open today under the Shop Surf name, and it'll become the Ventana Surf Shop and Coffee Bar um, probably sometime in June. Looking forward to it. It's Thank you guys fun. so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks a ton. Thank you. And people can get in touch with you on Instagram. Yeah, at Ventana Surfboards and VentanaSurfboards.com. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Phases by Daniela Smith, and I will link to her band page in the show notes below. If you are a musician, send me music. I want your music. Email it to info at kyle.surf. That's also where you can send voice memos. Just bust out your phone and send some shit in. I love hearing from you. I don't know who you are. You know who I am, but I don't know who you are. So I want to know if you're cool. Uh, I'm batting a thousand for people who I meet who listen to this podcast who are cool except for that one guy but we won't talk about him I'm just kidding uh, but yeah send me some voice memos uh, you can email to info at kyle.surf also I'm going to do more speaking engagements this summer uh, or yeah this summer and, and into fall I was recently at the University of Rhode Island uh, so if you are a, a student if you go to a university you should hit me up and maybe we can work something out Uh, I like these live events. They bring people together. And isn't that just the best thing ever? Um, So with that, hope you enjoy this song. Um, Don't forget to go to mudwater.com, mudwtr.com, scmedicinals.com, 
get all your favorite shit. And you can go to my website, kyle.surf, to check out the box of goodies. This is where I sell mud water, Sankers Medicinals, and uh, a book from one of my favorite authors um, every month at a greatly discounted price. That's all for now. Get out in the water. Whatever body of water you're closest to, jump in, enjoy it. Life's short. Life is way too short. So spend time with people you love and uh, go hop in the ocean. It'll make your day better. Hope you enjoy this song by Daniela Smith called Phases. See you soon. I'm going